You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. feel like who art ed. We'll try to spice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. And joining me once again, I have Emily Fiedler, who is probably a little bit shocked that I actually pronounced her name the first time. <laughs> How many takes did we do before where I said a fielder? Um, I don't know if it was the name or the school. <laughs> so I'm going to quiz you. What school do I teach at? Ellsworth. Elmwood. <laughs> ah! Elmwood. Come on, one of the fellow Blue Ribbon schools. It's 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 an E name. It is. In in my mind, like you know how some people have face blindness? I think I have that, but with names. <laughs> like, like, there's there's an E in there. All those E names to me are the same. Emily, Elmwood, Ellsworth, and all e- exactly. Together. Exactly. That's how I know you work at Elmwood or Ellsworth. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's because it's Emily at the E school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't make me do with the online. Eagles. With the Eagles, yeah. <laughs> but seriously, thank you so much for making the time. Um, I really appreciate it, and this should be an interesting episode because we've got a museum heist, a great work by Vermeer. There's just like so much to this. Have you ever talked about an art heist on here? Um, yes, I've talked about uh, Picasso and how he was suspected of stealing the Mona Lisa mm-hmm. and how he went on trial because while he didn't steal the Mona Lisa, he had stole he had some Iberian sculptures stamped mm-hmm. property of the Louvre and he was like worried he was going to get deported and in the dead of night, like pack them up into a suitcase to throw them into the Seine River. Such so a never, delightful tale. Never one um, within the United States. This is the first. Yeah, I think this is this is probably the first. And the largest. We are going to cover a little bit of ground historically. We're going to be talking about a museum. We're going to talk about Vermeer as well. And we're going to be talking about a Vermeer painting that was stolen from the museum. If you want to see an image of the work being discussed, as always, you can see it in the episode-specific cover art that I put up. If you're listening on Amazon Music or Spotify or any other platform that supports that. Now, let's start off with a little bit about the museum. This heist, I just, I find so fascinating. So it's like in 1990, St. Patrick's Day fell on a Saturday. So Boston has some pretty big celebrations happening. Yeah. I mean, most American cities do, but I feel like Boston really leans into it. Mm -hmm. 
And so just after St. Patrick's Day, it's like 1 or 2 a.m. the next day, there's, I think it was two men showed up at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and they identified themselves as police officers sent to investigate like a disturbance. Basically, you know, the the museum guards probably assumed it was something to do with the revelry from St. Patrick's Day and all of that. And so they asked the guards, they asked the guard for help. And this was the, the guard's first mistake. He did get away from his desk, which was not the, not the procedure, not the protocols, but he got up and he lets them in. And the two men then overpowered that guard and the other guard that was on duty. They handcuffed him, duct taped him, tied him up, um, like in a storage room or something like that. I right. I think it was that or the basement the basement that's right that's right and so then for like an hour and a half um i think it was a total of 81 minutes they're in there and they're taking seemingly random pieces off the wall from everything i've read investigators say like there's no rhyme or reason to it but they stole 13 works of art worth an estimated 500 million dollars it's you, arguably the largest art theft in modern history. Do you think that these thieves had an understanding of the works or they just kind of went crazy? Okay, so they had the chance. So as we're looking at what they stole, I mean they they stole more than one Rembrandt. I have to think that doesn't happen by accident, you know? One of the pieces they stole was Rembrandt's only seascape. So, like, that's a pretty significant work. Some of the other stuff, it, it almost seemed like they were just, like, grabbing what was close by. You know what <laughs> I mean? Some of them seemed not to fit into a collection. I I think I think it was largely, like, they had a few pieces they, they wanted or were told to get. And, I mean, as long as you're there, you might as well grab a few more. <laughs> Sticky fingers. Keep right? I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, in for a pound, in for a penny. You know? like, <laughs> I just put it on the record. I would never steal artwork from a museum. No. Kyle, uh, would you? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not the type who would steal from the museum. I am the type who wouldn't be able to resist, like, touching something in the museum as yeah. I pass by. Okay. But but I, I you know, I, I try to do no harm in everything. I fail, but I try to do no harm. Yeah. Yeah, so they steal this, and to this day, this is an unsolved crime. Um, it's, you know, one of the few ones that has gone un unsolved. I think what's interesting is the museum, the museum's, like, leaned into this. Like, they are known for this theft. That was, like, uh, a docu-series on Netflix, right, yeah. recently. That was... That was really captivating because, I mean, you, you see this and there's so many tantalizing bits. Like there's suspicions that it's organized crime behind it, um, that uh, at one point the guards themselves were suspects. Although from what I understand, they've been cleared as official suspects, but they were the first people that were looked at like, you know, were you in on this? Because it seems like you would need an inside person to let people into the museum. There there have been some, like, little things here and there. You hear some rumblings. Like, there was somebody who was involved with organized crime who 
um, who was killed in 1991. And like that was supposedly like connected to this or possibly like some people have said things alluding to that guy being connected. But we don't know to this day. I mean, we're talking 30 years late, 30 years past kind of think we'll probably never know. I can't help but wonder if those paintings still exist somewhere in the world or if they were destroyed or like the Picasso throwing them into a body of water. Um, it's like it is in Boston. That is a seaside place, location. Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing. Although, I mean, Picasso thought about throwing it into the river. But he said he couldn't bring himself to do it because I guess mm-hmm. that's where... That's where he, you know, found a shred of humanity. But, (laughs) but, um, you know, with this one, it always kind of seems interesting to me when you see it's like worth $500 million or whatever. I think in some ways it is and in some ways it isn't. Because while that might be the price that you could expect to get an auction in the legitimate markets, like most people aren't going to pay for it. It's not like you can publicize it and say like to the highest bidder, get these stolen artworks, you know, like there's a very slim market for people who will actually buy stolen artworks like that. Um, or at least things that they undeniably know were stolen. (laughs) Right. And because of the publicity, how could you not? Yeah. And so, so it's one of those pieces that like, you can't really display prominently. It's for someone who I would assume somebody for whom money is an abstraction where like it it doesn't really matter. And it's just for their private collection and their bragging rights. It's probably like in a closet somewhere, you Mm -hmm. know, I have to think you wouldn't destroy it though. I mean, who would go? I mean, they did, they did harm it when they took it out. Cause like when they were taking pieces out, they were cutting it out of their frames. Yes, and removing them from the canvas. Um, from structures. the stretcher bars. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they could, that was one of the ways they easily transported the works out um, of the museum. But yeah, no, I mean, if they didn't have an understanding of art, which I can't help but think if you were to destroy the canvas structures, you don't understand <laughs> how the paintings work. Then, no, I, I think you would, because, I mean, nobody really cares about the stretcher bars. But... If you're cutting around the perimeter, you know, the work itself, at least the pivotal points of it, aren't going to be harmed by that. Mm-hmm. But I truly wonder if they, like, leave blank frames of where the They do. Went. They do? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, what's cool about the Gartner is it... So, I guess a little bit about uh, Isabella Stewart Gartner... Um, whose name I constantly misspell in the notes. You'll see it spelled like three times in the notes, uh, three different ways. But she basically was a private collector who set this stuff up. It's it's like a home, basically. Mm-hmm. There's it's, a guarded courtyard that's beautiful. Yeah, and it's it's a which makes it very unique as museums go. And she was a collector. The piece we're going to talk about today is a Vermeer that she bought just because she kind of liked it. It was her first significant acquisition, but she bought it without like an expert guiding her in what to buy and what's going to be a good investment piece. Um, Vermeer, while today we think of like Vermeer as this 
really top-notch artist, the girl with the pearl earring and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, one of the most celebrated works out there is the girl with the pearl earring. But Vermeer was not like a heavy hitter art historically for hundreds of years. Um, In his lifetime, he had some prominence, but he wasn't like the top artist on the scene. And it wasn't until the 19th century that people sort of rediscovered Vermeer and he became a little bit more popular. Well, Isabella Stewart-Gartner bought uh, this piece, The Concert, from the estate of the critic who wrote about Vermeer and kind of like boosted Vermeer's image and like made him a significant player in the art history scene. Thing. Yeah, so so like this was her first major acquisition from the guy who made Vermeer Vermeer, you know, and this that was one of the pieces that was stolen. And I guess Isabella Stewart Gardner just she liked music and the piece is the concert. It's, you know, it's music mm-hmm. in a home environment and all, all of that sort of stuff. So she just from what I understand, she just liked it. And so it became a part of her collection and it was only one of, I think there are 36 Ver- Vermeers around. Maybe it's 35 because the National Gallery just discovered that one of their quote-unquote Vermeers was not a Vermeer. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Which, that's a future episode on, um, there's another Netflix series about fake art that has been displayed in New York galleries. And it is fascinating i i actually have a list of stuff to talk about in terms of fake arts i have so many fun fact mini episodes planned about like famous forgeries and fakes and stuff like that like there there was a story of this guy who was such a successful forger that he 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 was like put on trial for like this was around world war ii and he was like put on trial for like was selling stuff to the nazis and he had to be like no 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 i was selling them forgeries it's cool guys yeah oh my god um, like there's there's so many really interesting stories about forgers and fakes and stuff like that the the national gallery's vermeer that turned out not to be a vermeer i don't think it was like a forgery per se it's just there's not a lot of great documentation because as i said Vermeer, we're talking, um, you know, he was a 17th century Dutch artist, you know, and he like he was not really well known. There's not a ton of records of his life and of his work and of his process and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, there's just a lot of like, well, was this his? It kind of looks like his. Maybe it was his. Maybe it was one of his students. Mm -hmm. And that particular piece they came to they came to the conclusion that it's not his because of some of the just like some of the technical stuff you see in terms of like cracking on the top layer of paint where it's like the person who painted it's a it's a girl it was a painting of a girl like in a playing a flute i think it was the the girl with the flute um there's little stuff like the cracking of the top layer of paint like he was doing that before the underpainting fully dried and fully cured. 
And so you get this situation where like the top layer dries before the bottom layer and that can cause this cracking. And they're like, well, Vermeer was too good to make that kind of a mistake. This must have been like one of his students. It's kind of a a near miss on these techniques. But I digress. There are only there are only a couple of dozen Vermeers around and one of them was stolen from the gardener. It is crazy to think that there are so few of his works because if you're taking an art history course today, his name is constantly brought up for his contribution to the art world. Um, well, his name comes up and you, when you do research on other artists, you see their um, their body of work or their, you know, consists <laughs> of like hundreds, if not thousands of pieces. Um Somebody like Rembrandt was making hundreds of pieces in his day, mm-hmm. whereas Vermeer, it was a couple of dozen. And, you know, just to get into the Vermeer, because Vermeer's an interesting story as well. There's there's quite a bit behind this. So he's born 1632. We don't even know exactly when he was born, probably around Halloween, because he was baptized on October 31st. So certainly in before then, in October, but we don't know the exact date. He died at, um, he died, he was like, what, 43. He died in 1675. So not that old of a guy, not that long of a life. And we don't know much about his early life other than his father was an innkeeper and an art dealer. When his father died in 1652, basically Vermeer took over the family business, but his dad had racked up a ton of debts. And so like, Family, he takes over the family business, but it's not such a great family business. And then a year later, Johannes Vermeer, he wants to marry this other woman, Katharina Bolnes. Bolnes? Bolnes? I don't know. Kathleen. (laughs) Katharina. Katharina. It's the last name. Bolnes? I don't know. Katharina's mom basically didn't like this idea of her marrying um, Johannes Vermeer because Vermeer was not only in rough shape financially and Katharina's family was fairly well to do, but also like Katharina's family was, was Catholic. Vermeer wasn't, I guess Vermeer converted to Catholicism and that won her blessing. I think she, I think he also had somebody another artist like write a letter um, attesting to his fine character or something like that to convince, to convince his would be mother-in-law. Yes. Interesting. That should exist today. (laughs) Well, (laughs) really should need some references, but, (laughs) but I guess it was one of those things where, um, you know, especially back then, like interfaith marriages, were were something that people had some misgivings about and I think he needed like some something to attest that like this is a sincere conversion that he's a good guy that he's going to treat her and he's not just like marrying her for the money you know yeah well and even if we think about um like statuses within society where was the artist at this point in history I think that's a really good point because at this point in history, I feel like this is sort of a start in the 
the shift to the artist as the artiste, you know, that sort of visionary creator that starts to get some boost in stature. I mean, we see that happening, I feel like in the Renaissance, you know, we have those larger than life figures that we look back on in history, like Michelangelo. I mean, Michelangelo, if we thought of it in today's dollars, he earned millions of dollars. When he painted the Sistine Chapel, he was initially commissioned by the Pope to paint just like the 12 apostles on a small part of the ceiling. And he was like, no, 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 dude. I'm I'm doing these 300 figures. I'm gonna I'm gonna cover the entire, you know, creation of the universe and the fall of man just sprawling across this ceiling, you know? And yeah. like, trust me, it'll be great. So like the artists were starting to assert themselves and get their vision out there. And we see some like Rembrandt was celebrated in his day. But for the most part, the artist was sort of like he was an artisan. It was a craftsperson. You know what it I mean? Was, it was a shifting of perspective for society. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that time, like they were in their guilds, it was typically they would study, they would do an apprenticeship, they would learn from somebody else, and then they would start to create their own work. They join the guild as a master artist, teach it to other people. But in a lot of ways, it was a craft. It was about how do you how do you make these paints? Because that was some they literally had to make their paints and they had their own recipes for how they would create their paints and stuff like and they would guard those secrets as part of their skilled labor is, you know, I know how to make these. I know how to grind these things up and and mix them with oils and, you know, turn it into something that you can hang on the wall. One of the peculiar things about Vermeer is we have no records of his training. We have no records of who taught him. Um, he had so few works, and it was just like, Seemingly out of nowhere, he joined, I think it was the Guild of St. Luke was the the artist's guild, but he joined the guild as a master artist. Like, we don't have records of him being in there as an apprentice and stuff like that. But after this marriage, that's where he kind of had the, the financial backing and the comfort to be able to pursue painting. Um, Mm -hmm. He moved in with his mother-in-law And they had like, he and his wife had like 13 children or something like that while living at his mother-in-law's house. And while he's, while he's making these paintings, um, which mother-in-law was probably like, where is that letter of recommendation? (laughs) (laughs) And so then he's, you know, building his family in his mother-in-law's house and he's painting. And a lot of scholars will say he probably was sort of self-taught. He, had probably learned some stuff with his father having been an art dealer. You know, he's around other artists. He picks things up. He practices. He hones his skill. He hones his craft. There's also speculation that he was not only an innovator as a painter, but also with technology. There's this documentary film called Tim's Vermeer. Um, There's been some speculation that Vermeer may have been using a camera obscura um, to essentially like reflect an image and trace it and, and, you know, sort of like match up the colors by looking through a lens and stuff. And it's 
a little bit complicated and hard to explain in purely an audio format, but a camera obscura, think of it like walking into a pinhole camera. You know, you've got that reflected light. And if you get that that reflected light and, and focus it with a, a lens and use some mirrors, you can reverse it just right, all that. Um, there's speculation that he may have used a camera obscura because if you look at his works, almost all of them take place in the same room, in the same studio, in like the same corner of the studio with yeah. that dramatic light source, like the the windows the window. bringing all that light in and he's opposite that. And so this guy who had essentially no artistic training built a device he thought Vermeer would have been using, using only 17th century tools and technology that would have been available to him. And he produced a stunning painting, um, just like Vermeer's uh, The Music Lesson, I think was the piece. And it's just, it's really interesting to think about um, because it kind of gets you to reevaluate, like, what are we seeing in here? What is the art all about? Because to me, honestly, it's in some ways even more impressive if he created some sort of optical device to aid him in the creation well, like even when we're art educators, process is more important than the product. And that's yeah. the great thing about art history is learning the processes that these artists have gone through. But I did not know this about Vermeer and I am the innovation. I Well, it's it's really interesting because and, and that's the kind of thing where some people are like, oh, that feels like cheating if it's not freehand and all that. But it's like. Well, is it cheating to use a ruler to draw a straight line? Like, this is just like another tool and another innovation that he, I personally believe he probably did come up with. Um, yeah, well, yeah. If, is it cheating if you're the first person to try it? Yeah. And I mean, this was the camera obscura was a known technology. It's just applying it to the creation of, of paintings and stuff like that, because typically a camera, camera obscura, it would be really, really dim and stuff if you don't have a powerful all that sort of stuff. I'm not going to get too too far into the science that truthfully I don't really understand. But, um, you know, for most people, it was just not a practical thing. And if he came up with lenses and, again, where he was from, the Dutch were known for, like, their lenses and their lens technology. They were kind of, like, leaders in th that realm um, at that time. So I personally am personally am of the belief because also there are certain distortions like little details that you see that tend to happen in photographs because of the way that the light is bent by a lens and stuff like that and he, it's like he's reproducing that in his paintings which are mm -hmm. a little bit different from what we would see just looking at it eyeballing it like normal but uh enough down that rabbit hole so vermeer paints like I said, a couple a couple of dozen paintings in his life. He died, sadly, at just the age of like 43. The concert is one of those ones that he painted in that same corner of the same room. And after the break, we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about that piece. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. 
Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. So now we are looking at Vermeer's painting, The Concert. And this was painted uh, 1663 to 1666. If you're listening on Amazon Music, you can see it in the cover art for this episode. But uh, Emily, what what are you noticing? What's jumping out to you about this piece? Of course, we know the window is off to the left and the striking light that goes diagonally through the frame. Um, the Vermeers that I was familiar with and studied in art school were more so about cooking and like keeping of the house. Um, and they all showed like everyday life, but this is showing a very different aspect of everyday life, almost as an extra. Um, the landscapes in the back are drawing my attention because I want to see more detail in them, but they are um, taken down in detail because of the lighting that is within them. Um, but we've got a woman holding something to the right. I cannot tell what that is. Um, and then two women sitting and then there's like a harp or something to the left and then like a cello on the floor. This is really testing my musical instrument. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what's interesting is the painting within the painting. Um, there's speculation from some scholars saying like this may have been sort of one of those symbolic things you know how a lot of art from that period there's so much symbolism to every little little thing and it's almost always some sort of morality tale you know like it's like the people in the painting are looking on and and all of that sort of stuff and i i think also i've read other people other scholars have said there's really nothing more to that 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 was just a painting that his mother-in-law owned like they had that in the house that was just that's just what was on the wall you know um, because he's just painting what he sees in front of him in this in the studio as he's arranging this. But even with the painting on the wall, the woman's back is facing you right in the center. You don't know who that is. Like, so, so I don't yeah. know if I agree with that scholar that. You're talking about the person that is in the chair, right? The back yes. to us, the viewer. So that what we do know is that sash is signifying that he was part of, I think, a militia or something like that. So I see I see him as the audience. We see the woman who's standing looks like she's maybe holding sheet music or something like that. And we see someone else sitting at the piano. And so I see this as a performance for the dude in the chair. Mm. Um, but I feel like it's it's an awkward composition to have the central figure with his back to the audience, right? Like yes. the back to the viewer. Maybe this is a choice to make the viewer think that they are just stepping in. Yeah. It has that. I mean, he's doing a lot of these genre paintings of every scenes of everyday life, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it has that that feel of something that is just that fleeting moment captured on the canvas. Like you know, a Polaroid picture of 
17th century art. <laughs> yeah, which which is really funny when you think about it. Like it's it feels like a candid and yet you know it was so studied and meticulously rendered. Like this had to have taken a long time mm-hmm. to capture. But but it does feel like it's just this moment in time. And what strikes me about this piece, like all Vermeer's, is just the light. You know, we've got that light coming in from the left side of the painting. We've got the light that's cast across the figures. Um, I feel like that was his, like, central focus. And maybe that's because I'm primed to see that because I am seeing this through the lens of imagining him with his camera obscura and you got to focus a lot on the light for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's even interesting if we're looking really deep into the light, the women are so much more illuminated than the man. Yes. Yes. The, the women are, and I can't tell if that's just because of like the way that things break down over time. Like there's something mm-hmm. unnatural about, especially the standing figure. Is it just me? Like, her coloration doesn't feel quite quite right. Maybe it's the screen I'm looking at. Maybe it's the way things broke down over time. Um, I would agree. I mean, her dress in general is much darker than the other females. Um, there's that white piece going down the center. But if the light was shining on her, I'd expect her to be a little bit brighter and less yellow. Yeah. Um, especially compared to the white of her shirt. Um, almost looks a little like ill. Yeah. There's, there's something about, yeah, she looks a little bit almost ill, but I also think as I'm looking at her, the standing figure, it almost has that feel of, have you ever seen those old photographs that have been like recolored and retouched? Yes. Where it's just like, it's that little bit of like the uncanny valley, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, you know, <laughs> things get, as things get more realistic, they get better, better, better. And then like, there's this point where it's just the tiniest bit off and it feels creepy and unsettling. Mm-hmm. That's the vibe I'm getting from her. She doesn't fit with the rest. She just needs a little bit more warmth. Yeah. I'm getting real. Maybe it was the time of day. Maybe it was quite cloudy and delft that day. I mean, it very well could have been. Um, but I, I think. Or yeah. maybe it was a paint recipe gone wrong. I, that's also a, a strong possibility. I mean, we're talking about a time when people were creating their own stuff. So. Obviously, there's some experimentation and, you know, he was creating these paintings not for or not knowing how it would hold up mm-hmm. hundreds of years later. Availability of materials, too. And I'm like, wrapping it up, you know, just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the a loop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Um, I would say the lab. And I'm saying that because 
I want to know what went wrong with the coloring that we're seeing or whether it's just an issue with our vision, <laughs> our image. <laughs> and I want people to understand the significance of documenting everyday life. We do it today within like social media, but in an artful way. Yeah. The way that Vermeer and other 17th century artists did. Um, and honestly, when we document, it's kind of chaotic sometimes. There, it's full blown photo shoots, and you have to do it first for everyone else before you do it for yourself. And really, he was more so doing it to study art and had a different purpose. And I think that's why we respect his artwork significantly more. Do you agree in my location choice? Uh, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I think there's a lot to learn from it. I, I can't help but say, I feel like this belongs in the museum just because, you know, the gardener deserves to get their work back. They've been hanging those empty frames for so long. (laughs) I didn't realize you were specifying which museum. (laughs) I, I think, I think there's something really nice about this. I think there's a lot to learn from it. I, I do like the stillness, the softness, the calm to it. I also think it's interesting that you bring the social media connection to it because this was a genre painting. This was a scene of everyday life that it does feel like the, it does feel like what a 17th century Instagram would look like. An influencer. (laughs) Well, and also because of the, the cropping of the composition we see that like that table with the fabric draped over it on the left hand side. We see things running out of the picture plane. And that feels to me like that is a post photography composition style. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah. where where you see all of these things and you don't have everything neatly framed within the center. It's not like that historical, like triangulated composition. I mean, not as curated. Yeah. Curated in a more casual way. Yeah. I mean, because it, it, it is obviously posed and arranged, but yeah. it's more authentic. The, yeah. It's that carefully constructed casualness, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Which is impossible. Which is to once do. again totally in line with social media. Yeah. Well, I I really, once again, appreciate your taking the time to come out once again and join me on the podcast. I always love talking to you, even if I have no idea where you're coming from. It's one of the e-schools with the e-mascot. At first when you said I have no idea where you're coming from, I thought you meant my opinions, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is this is where the podcast takes a hard turn, and I just throw shade at the person who's willing to help me out. <laughs> the roast, the roast begins. Yeah, uh, thank you so much once again. I really thank appreciate you for having it. Me. It's always fun, so thank you.
This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.